Hi, Katie. Bonjour. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. I've got that thing that happens to me when it, we go into the autumn where my eye starts twitching. Oh. I don't know whether it's just that I get busy or lack of vitamin D. So I've got the old twitchy eye, which is a bit of a shame, but that doesn't matter for a podcast. Oh, How are you? Sorry to hear about that. Uh, I'm all right. I'm pretty damn cold. Paris has suddenly decided to do winter. And um, as these winter nights are setting in, I am thinking about food pretty much constantly, like some sort of large squirrel or a bear or something like preparing for hibernation. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're going to bring you a story about food. Yeah, our favourite topic. This week, we're handing over the reins of the podcast to Sara, an Albanian writer based in Paris who paints in her free time. And she's got a story for us that spans three generations of women, her grandmother, her mother, and her. These three women have seen a lot of change in their collective lifetimes. The regime began in Albania, it fell, and then there was transition. And through it all was a dish, Trahana. This is the third episode in our series, This is What a Generation Sounds Like, a co-production with Are We Europe, funded by Allianz Kulturstiftung. These are stories told by people across the continent about what it's like to be young in Europe today. They're being turned into beautiful visual podcasts that you can watch online, which we are incredibly excited about. You'll find more information in the show notes. This week's story comes to you from Sarah, co-produced by Katz Laszlo. I'm back in Tirana, the capital city, visiting home. My mom is teaching me how to make trahana. It's a kind of savory, thick porridge made with fermented wheat. First, you fry up olive oil and butter. Add the trahana flour while the butter is melting. The trahana came a little bit red. It smells a bit nutty. It smells buttery. It smells really good. Water mixing, adding hot water and mixing all the time. Slowly, you add the water. And always hot water, because if you are adding cold water, the paste it's not anymore uniform. Could be separated. Ah, that's and stick what I it. always do. Then, in another pan, you melt even more butter. The butter and the oil, chili, like chili flakes. Or the paprika. Ah, this is a little bit hot, so I like it hot. You like spicy. It. And while that's all sizzling, toast some bread. Toaster, because it's more tasty. Cut it in small pieces. There's just. And now you put the bread. Oh, Chili and the butter over the soup of trahana, over the bread, everything. That's so good. So good. Yeah. Ready to eat. It's ready to eat. Excellent. Thank you, Mama. One of my first memories is of my grandmother making trahana in her two-bedroom apartment where my mother and uncle grew up. And you would open the door and the whiff this fermentation whiff would hit you in the face and I would know, aha, it's trahana time. You'd have the sunlight, this orangey tint from the sun and from the trahana, which is orange. So everything just felt orange and acidic and fermented. Over the years, my uncle's old bedroom became the trahana room and you would have the flower spread out, thrown over a blanket on the floor, 
on the table, just on any flat surface, and it would be drying. I would always want to go and peek and sort of touch it, and my grandma would just come and scream and, you know, leave the trahana alone, don't mess with it. It's not going to ferment properly if you go and mess about with it. My grandparents ate trahana all the time. But the thing is, it wasn't just that I wasn't allowed to help make trahana. It literally never went in my mouth. I, I just never had it. I, I knew the smell. For some reason, my grandmother wouldn't let me eat it. It was really only much later when I realized that there was an actual dish I had been told not to eat. And I realized the absurdity of it. Why on earth wasn't I allowed to eat this dish? How is it possible that I never even took a bite? My grandma, my mom and me have all spent a good chunk of our lives in Tirana. But we've known very different Albanias. My grandmother was born in 1932, right before the rule of the communist dictator Enver Hoxha. She gave birth to my mother during his regime in 1966. And me, I was born right after the fall of the regime, the 1990s. The transition into capitalist democracy. I think the transition was apparent in this really weird abstract way for for a child because it was mostly felt through the stories told around me. I was growing up in this period where people constantly spoke of this really near past. So I grew up with this discourse of what had just happened without actually knowing what had just happened because I was born into the afterworld. So you were conscious that something had changed and that things were now different because I think there were developments every day, you know, a democracy and a republic sort of starting to be built from scratch. So politics was insanely present in everyday life and table conversation. And it was not something that happened in the background. It was really constantly present. Um, I think in most families, but especially in my family. At my parents' home, we talked a ton about politics. My dad's a journalist and my mom was a professor at the time. But at my grandparents' place, in the old part of town, we mostly just talked about family stuff. Daily anecdotes, you know, who she knew, who told her what. We spoke a lot about how she raised my mom. I was really into music videos back then. But my parents weren't too keen on me spending all day in front of the TV. So I'd spent a lot of weekends at my grandparents watching hours and hours of the Albanian equivalent of MTV. Same music, same videos, Kelly Rowland, Nelly, Mariah Carey, Pink. You know, the three of us would be sitting on the sofa, my grandpa, my grandma, and then me, watching TV. And the two of them would have these like plates of trahana that they would eat with a spoon. And I would be cutting through a Nutella pile of pancakes or crepes on the little table. I do remember seeing that we were having different things and I do remember asking them what they were eating and if I could taste it. I vividly remember the smell, the sound of the grains, the color. And then my grandparents saying, no, no, this is, this is poor people's food. This is old people's food. Why would you want that? Just have your pile of crepes or whatever. And, and then that was that, you know. My grandmother passed away earlier this year. Grieving her got me thinking a lot about who she was. My grandma, um, so this is my mother's mom. She used to be a math teacher. 
So you can go ahead and take all the stereotypes that are coming up in your head right now about math teachers and put them in one small old lady, and that is her. She had these really observing and scrutinizing eyes that she would look at you with if you ever like did not get a multiplication right or an equation right that she would just throw at you. And yeah, I think she was someone who, who overall appeared somewhat strict, but she was really just a fluff ball underneath and yeah, just really, really fiercely intelligent, very much a no bullshit person, I think. <laughs> Add to that the tenderness and affection that only grandmothers can have. She never really cared about <laughs> any boyfriend that I had or... Or she's just like, yeah, yeah, cool, next. Tell me about your work. Like, tell me about what you've done. Tell me about, you know, this and that. And tell me about that picture you've painted. Tell me what you've done, you know, and I think that's, that's really cool. Her death also got me thinking about what we didn't talk about. At least not properly. Specifically, Trahana. Growing up in the 1990s, there was a lot we didn't talk about. People were putting themselves back together. There was a lot of trauma to work through. And on top of that, people had had to get used to living in scarcity. And then, all of a sudden, overabundance. Shelves filled with Coca-Cola, Pringles, Hubba Bubba chewing gum. That's me and my mom. I'm asking her to fill me in. During the regime, trahana was a staple food. It's cheap. The ingredients are basic, water and flour. I mean, sure, you could drizzle it with hot olive oil and chili, but that wasn't always readily available. Growing up, I had collected little snippets of what life had been like under the regime. But the emotional side, what this recent history had done to our family, not so much. This conversation you're hearing between my mom and I, it's the first time I'm not just listening to the familiar anecdotes, but I'm actually asking her questions. Well into my 20s. My mom is saying that back in the 1940s, when my grandmother was growing up, before the regime, some people could afford more than others. Trahana was truly a social marker because for some it was one of the choices whereas other households only ate trahana but during the worst part of the regime in the 80s when my mom was growing up that's when the Albanian economy started degrading. Albania was extremely isolated. It had basically cut off all ties with other countries. The idea being that we could produce everything we needed ourselves and only consume as much as we needed. The regime meant that almost everyone was subject to the same scarcity. Everything was rationed. You couldn't just buy anything you wanted whenever you wanted. You could have as much food as you would be able to get your hands on depending on the stocks and the coupons that the government would deliver and how far and how early you would go to queue up at the shop on the designated day. My parents told me my grandpa would get up at 2 a.m. 
to stand in line for milk before the stocks ran out. There was a whole system around queuing, codes of behavior or ways to save yourself a spot if you had to be in two queues at the same time. So in my grandma's adult life, Trahana ended up being the staple food she would have to feed her family with. Probably she would have to worry about how much of it she could make in a single season and whether it was more than the last or, or less than the last or more than the next. I really don't know what that must have felt like for her. The regime fell in 1991, right before I was born. People wanted to make a break with the past. Many people migrated to other places. Famously, the first ships to Italy after the country opened up carried 15,000 Albanians, hoping to make a new life elsewhere. We set up new lives all over the world. Many more moved on without moving away, like my family. My mom told me, because Albania opened up and people became more affluent, all these new tastes and flavors came flooding in from the rest of the world. We got to meet new people, new ideas, new artwork, new politics, new societies, pleasant or unpleasant. That was right when I was young. The glorious dawn of Coca-Cola and Beyonce. Nobody wanted to eat Trahana anymore. There was a break with tradition that lasted about 20 years. Most of my lifetime, really. But this dish? It hasn't gone away. It's like it's always been there, simmering in the back of our minds. To me, it feels like this secret password that Albanians have amongst each other more than anything. Because I think if you speak to people about Trahana, they won't know. But if you speak to an Albanian about Trahana, you know, like, it's instant space for inside jokes. And, you know, people know what you're talking about. And it's still not something we make. It's it's not like, oh, I'll come over for dinner to make Trahana. That's still not it. Like, I feel, I feel like it still remains this really personal thing. I grew up. I moved away eventually ended up in Hong Kong. I'd been away for years. I missed home. I was looking for music, books, basically anything which would connect me to it. And at some point I realized I was eating congee, the famous Chinese savory porridge, and I hadn't even tasted trahana. So I called my parents one night and said, this is it, guys. You need to feed me trahana when I come back for the holidays. They responded... In, in a way that I was really not expecting. I, th- I think in my head I had built up a... I was prepared for a fight. I was prepared to convince them to, to feed me. And because the first years of my life, the first 20 years of my life, I was like said, no, 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 you're not going to have this dish. And so when I called them up to say, I really want to eat this, they said, no, yeah, sure, why not? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I thought this was a no-go zone <laughs> in, in the kitchen cabinet. I asked my mom if she remembered the moment when I called her and asked her to make trahana. And she told me she remembered it vividly. Funnily enough, actually, she had her trahana awakening around the exact same time. 
She started working in the region where her family's from and rediscovered a lot of the flavors and products from her childhood. She says her job brought her back to her roots, reminded her of what her grandmother and mother used to make. And she started making trahana again. It was a familiar pleasure. And she wanted to share it. So as soon as I got back, my mom and I spent a whole morning in the kitchen. And then we finally sat down as a family to eat trahana. The four of us with my dad and my brother also, we just sat and we had trahana. And my parents were like, well, it's kids. So this is trahana. <laughs> After all these years, my first spoonful. The first spoonful of trahana I had. <laughs> I think it was, it felt like it's, it was not really like anything I was used to eating. It's this really thick, chunky, bitter, fermented, but also really savory and spicy, thick soup. It's not a faint, quaint, easy peasy flavor. You know, it, it is intense and, and it's intense in texture and it's intense in flavor. It's really rich and I really like that. And it was really strange to eat something that was so new in terms of taste, but also so incredibly familiar in terms of presence and in terms of smell. Something felt a bit more normal after that first bite. But at the same time, that was that, right? We had had trana now. <laughs> All is good in the world. <laughs> My mom says that since that moment, whenever she goes back to her family's region, she always buys some extra for me. Just like her grandmother, who used to save some for my mother's mother. It's like a voice reverberating through our roots. It's a shared history of the women of our family, which means a lot to her. Listening to her talk, I realized that this dish meant something slightly different to each of us. I also wondered, did my mom and my grandmother ever explicitly talk about not feeding me trahana? Or is it something that just happened? My mom says that they never talked about it. She never asked. I told her that to me, it feels like they didn't offer me this dish because it was so connected with the before world. Almost like it didn't belong. Like this was the point where the two worlds just could not meet. Of course, we can't know for sure how my grandmother felt. But after talking through it, my mom says I might have a point. Especially because of their age, it was probably quite meaningful to choose to eat Rahana. It was the taste of their identity, their childhood, of the past. But it came from an entirely different world from the one we now live in. Trahana was a frontier that separated the before world from the present. Turns out, my grandparents never offered it to my mom either. Maybe they placed her in the new world too? So perhaps my mother and I now agree that my grandparents associated this dish with a painful past. Pain that was so deeply etched in their memories that they might have felt that if I ate Rahana, 
I'd eat their lived experience with it. After my mother taught me, I started cooking trehana for my friends in Paris. Not as a staple, but as a dish to show off with. Sprinkled with feta and hot chili flakes and even some caramelized onions every now and then. Though I might have crossed the blasphemous line with that one. I wonder what my grandmother would make of this quest I've been on. I had a realization after she passed away, which was that it wasn't just her passing away. It was an entire generation passing away. It, it was an entire treasure chest of a lived experience that there was no way to transmit. She was really my closest portal to understanding that part of Albania and that part of my family's history and having those stories told to me. If she was still alive, I know what I would ask. I mean, I would have liked to ask her what it felt like to see the world change. What it felt like to have grandchildren that have so little in common with how you were like as a mother. What the experience of your children was like. And, you know, we would be in the same apartment and I would be watching these music videos from America. What? You know, I would be watching Mariah Carey and 50 Cent on a TV screen. Like, what, what did that look like to her? Did, did it feel like she was watching an alien run about in her house? Or did she grasp it? Why? And why did she hold on to Trahana? You know, like, why? My mom didn't. Why did she hold on to it? Like, what? Did it feel like having a time capsule eating it? Or did it not feel like anything? This journey I've been on with Trahana has been long, often surprising and definitely delicious. This is where I'm at now, sharing Trahana with my friends in Paris. I don't think I ever expected this dish to come to mean so much to me. The last few years of tasting it, cooking it and sharing it with those who are dear to me have led to much broader reflections around how trauma, but also love, can be passed from one generation to the next, and how food can be a vehicle for that. It makes me feel like a, an older Albanian lady, just sort of like slowly stirring the soup and making sure that it's good. And <laughs> makes me think of my mom and my grandma every time. Where are you from, Albania? Sorry. Tirana. Mm. Well, well. <laughs> it makes my friends and I talk about where we are really from. I'm particularly grateful that this dish has created a tangible way for me to appreciate the women who came before me. Especially now that my grandmother is no longer with us. Until now, Trahana has been an excellent guide to exciting flavors, reconciliation and creativity. I've yet to see where else it takes me. I'll be open to anything, as long as food is involved. Mm-hmm. 
This episode was written in collaboration by Sarah and me, Kat Sleslow. Sarah was your host and production and sound design came from me. Katie Lee was our editor and additional support came from Dominic Kramer and Wojciech Oleksiak. Priyanka Shankar was our assistant producer. Thank you so much to the women of this family for trusting us with your story. Thank you also to our collaborators at Are We Europe and Allianz Kulturstiftung for funding this episode. And of course, many thanks to our Patreon supporters who are generously helping to keep this podcast going. The music you're hearing now is Era Efemenis by Elina Duni singing about the smells of her childhood. Additional music was Song of Emigration, sang by Women's Choir from Permet, Tana by Sazizo, Kanye Mot Ejizenviti, also by the Elina Duni Quartet, Yonuzi Mashoket by Val Makaba, Ballerina by Yeheskel Raz, Mamadeu by the Peter Pan Quartet, and of course, the one and only Jim Barn. Ma qui to, segno piacimento, ciò che tu